October 28, 1985, STCF hosted a panel moderated by Peter Ziegler, featuring Thulani Davis, William Hoffman, Rhoda Levine, Judith Molina, Emily Mann, and Erica Monk to consider the role of theater in society. Hello, I'm STC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to STCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theater Wing. The STCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. My name is Peter Zeisler, and I'm the moderator, so luckily I don't have to say anything. On my right is Erica Monk, and next to her is Judith Molina, and next to me on this side is Rhoda Levine, Emily Mann, and William Hoffman. The topic of the symposium today is the role of politics in the theater. I don't know how you separate the politics from theater if you're doing theater, but we'll get into that. Um, we have one more person coming, Thulani Davis, who will be joining us in about a half hour. Um, I thought we'd start by me throwing out some questions and the panel. It's all right, it's dead. <laughs> terrifying. And the I mean, panel responding. Uh, and maybe we should start with really uh, what is the role of the theater in the society? Uh, it, it certainly has changed in the last 50 years uh, with film and television. It's, it's serving a different function in, a t in any society now than the theater did 50 five years ago. Uh, we need to respond to uh, why should political issues be examined in the theater? I said earlier, I don't really understand if you're doing, if you're really examining, the theater is examining the society. Either questioning or celebrating it, it has to have a political content. How can fiction adequately convey political reality? What dangers are inherent in dealing with political issues in the theater? Um, I just. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you a. I'm going to give you a Chinese laundry list. Go as you will. Uh, I just came back uh, a few weeks ago from congressional hearings about the reauthorization uh, of the endowment. And you probably all have read of the phony issues of, uh, of uh, pornography. Those really were not issues of pornography at all, that those two uh, seminal minds from Texas were uh, bringing up. <laughs> what they were really talking about was censorship. Uh, and what they, were really, uh, what they were really saying was that how dare the government, how dare any agency fund uh, anything um, that uh, was questioning uh, their perception of what a government should do. Terrifying. We're really getting back to Mr. McCarthy in a very quick way. In um, are audiences on the whole interested in and capable of re-examining their political beliefs in the course of a couple of hours in the theater? Have you perceived any discernible changes resulting from plays already produced which dealt with political ideas? Have you perceived any discernible changes 
resulting from plays already produced which dealt with political ideas. I think that uh, is enough to keep us going for five or six hours. William, you want to start? Yes. Um, Boy. <laughs> uh, take anyone from column A, B, or C. Okay. I've, um, uh, I was, uh, I'm the author of As Is, and As Is is uh, often been asked if this is a, a political play, what kind of political play it is. I've been told it is a political play. And it's been very interesting. I, uh, I'm all in favor of political theater. I, uh, to me, uh, the oldest piece of political theater I know of is the Arsaia, which was the waiting for last year this period. Yeah. And uh, it, was probed, it was written to uh, elect terribly. And uh, the passage of years, we forget the political context of the play, and uh, it becomes uh, uh, purely a work of art. And uh, so to me, there's no contradiction between uh, political play and, uh, uh, and work of art. And uh, I've written political plays. I, I like political plays. I wrote uh, Cherry Orchard's cartoon on Tony Holland, which is a savage attack on the Russian Revolution. It's the angriest thing ever been written. And uh, it's uh, deeply political. I think it's a work of art. And I believe in this kind of theater. I wrote uh, Cornberry uh, with Tony. And, uh, again, that's uh, in, in a way with uh, revanchist pop. Um, it was written during the time of the bicentennial to uh, as a, um, an attack on the fact that there were no gays represented in the bicentennial. And I did a story of Lord Cornberry who rules New York in drag. His portrait hangs like that in New York Circus. So I believe in, I really, he really does. It's painful. And, uh, but when I wrote As Is, I did not feel it was a political play. It had tremendous political repercussions. And uh, I was simply, when I, writing As Is, I was doing portrait of, in time and space of these two guys and their background and their family. And, uh, Example of the kind of thing that happened, uh, Mayor Cox saw the play one night and the next day announced a $7 million grant or something like that. I don't believe that we created the $7 million grant. I think we had something to do with funds being released. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, we helped heighten awareness, certainly brought to the attention of people and, uh, AIDS. But I really wasn't writing necessarily about AIDS, and it certainly, I didn't think of it as politics, I thought of it as a portrait. And now in retrospect, I realize with the hatred of gay people in the society, just write a portrait of two gay guys. But I really didn't uh, set out to do that. And um, so uh, I, uh, you know, I'm also working on an opera libretto and suggested by the third play of Beaumarchais. Now, Beaumarchais, who wrote The Marriage of Figo and The Barber of Seville, uh, it was considered in its time to set off the, the French Revolution. He wrote the theater. Uh, the uh, Marriage of Figo is a, is a family revolutionary play. And Napoleon said that had he been a Louis, that he would have had uh, the play banned. Um, uh, so I think it's quite natural that the government wanted to control what it did said about it with its own funds. And, um, uh, because uh, they realize the power of, uh, and this is not a necessarily uh, uh, unreasonable thing to ask, uh, that uh, words have power. 
we aren't jerking off, we have powers to our words, and um, uh, I think that's good. Uh, but I think with the, the word we have, uh, there comes tremendous responsibility, and, uh, and we can be held accountable for it. Thank you. Um, far be it from me to entertain any kind of an editorial comment, but in this month's uh, issue of American Theater, there is our first full-length play, and it is Execution of Justice. Uh, Emily, take it from there. I almost don't know where to begin, because um, I spent my life dedicated to doing what I consider big political theater. I don't question whether it is or isn't. It, it just is, and I, I don't know uh, uh, what I could put up on a stage that isn't. You know what I mean? So I spend my life doing it, and so it's very, um, I, I need help to narrow a question. I don't know what people are interested in, in hearing, and, and I've just opened execution, having directed myself, so I have, for me, it's, it's very concrete, it's not abstract, it's very, um, very specific. So I, I, I don't, I think, uh, well, I think we're floundering on the definition yeah. of about political theater. What oh. about? <laughs> or, or is it just me? Because I don't know how many, I think all theater is political. Well, exactly. I mean, if you are. It didn't seem so historically. Uh, I think it seems so now. And I agree that it always has been. Uh, I, I agree that from the Oristaya on, and uh, it, those of us were dedicated to it, feel it. Uh, there's no uh, Jackson Pollock is Julian uh, Beck once asked Jackson Pollock if he if he paints anything, and he paints this very abstract specific painting. And uh, Jackson said, "I can't put a line on a piece of paper or a stroke of paint on a canvas without making a picture of something." And I think the same thing is true of of, of, of theater, one can hardly make a statement because, as you say, it can protest or object or it can celebrate the society. But this isn't always so clear. I know that when, when uh, Julian Beck and I started to work on the Living Theater in 1937, uh, political theater was not a viable concept, a viable phrase. It was a concept that always existed, of course. There was always labor stage and there were always small agitprop groups and we knew about that and uh, I studied here with Owen Gustata who was a political director who had come to the United States and couldn't produce a play here was only a school teacher because he could only do political theater and he didn't know what anything else that anything else was possible and now we were we were from the outset convinced uh, as Bill had said, that, that you can't do a play without either celebrating or protesting or in some way reflecting the society. But the word for that in 1950 was cheap propaganda. And you can't really do propaganda plays. You can, I could do art or politics propaganda. I was surprised that after your very excellent definition of the, of the uh, um, election campaign characters, uh, you still felt in some way uh, when you said, but it became, it started out political, but then it became pure art. Uh, 
it really should. Well, you, nowadays, said of the, you said that of the artist's no, time. Nowadays, you don't right. view it as a political play at all. Right. That's why I, I, I said it's viewed as pure art now. It never was pure art. Mm -hmm. It's an illusion to think of it as pure art. I don't think it ever was or ever meant to be. And, and I don't think anyone thought it was going to survive. But at a time when no one, when, when no one thought of doing Brecht, and Brecht came here as he started trying to do uh, the private life of the master race, thinking, that, well, at least anti-fascism can't be taboo. <laughs> but, but even that couldn't be done because it was too overtly political. Uh, what we decided we had to do was what, what, what George Bernard Shaw called sugarcoat the pill and, and hide our political meaning. And, and, and put on plays in which it appeared to be only poetry and, re and, and, and trying to, uh, like a, a Trojan horse, to bring in subversively the <laughs> message. But that was all that was possible. And even then, they caught us out soon enough and said, ah, you're really, you're really red. And, it, it, and, and I think that this has been historically good. Go back to Andrew Lab. Yeah. Lonnie Davis has just joined us. Um, how do you feel, or how do you, what has changed since you first wrote uh, Execution of three years ago? Yeah, first, yeah, first draft of it. What has changed? Yeah, what did you think you were writing then, and what do you think you have written now? Uh-huh, that's, that's a good question. Um, when I started to write the play, which is about, um, uh, actually, the spy in the play is a trial of Dan White, who just actually, you know, was read, committed suicide this past week. He killed the uh, the mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone, and uh, the gay activist leader and city supervisor, Harvey Milk, and then was sentenced to two counts, was convicted of two counts of voluntary manslaughter and spent five years, one month, and three days in jail. Um, after the riot, after the verdict came down, um, the people in San Francisco rioted. Um, and when he got out of jail, there was there was more violence. Um, he took his own life. Basically, um, when I started to write the play, uh, I knew I needed to write about it because everyone I talked to when I was in San Francisco felt still that it was an open wound. Uh, both the murders and the verdict, that they had no idea how to process the fact that this amount of injustice had been done and that still trying to process the loss of two major leaders. Um, that again in this country, assassination was put down to one alone um, uh, crazy guy. Again, it was being seen out of context in the society. There's one sad little guy who ate too many Twinkies, which is in fact was the defense of Twinkie defense. <coughs> and so, because his mother didn't love him and he ate too much junk food, he really, you know, shouldn't be held accountable for his actions. And he was a good all-American boy, and of course all-American boys, when they're angry, feel violently. We all know this and we shouldn't hold it against him. <laughs> so, uh, that is how it was seen in San Francisco by the people I talked to, regardless of sexual preference, uh, politics, people were on all sides of the issue um, violently uh, responsive. Um, I spoke to people on the left, I then also spoke to people on the right. A lot of this man had also been a fireman, a policeman, and a Golden Glove boxer. Um, his uh, policeman buddies uh, actually said to me the only mistake he made was they didn't put a gun to his own head. 
um, that day commit suicide, but his kids could see him as a hero. Um, that was the more civilized uh, uh, quote I had. Uh, so I realized that whoever I talked to, it was either a, a slam of the door in the face or they needed to talk in some way about the issue, and so I knew I needed to examine it. That's all I knew when I started. By the time I finished, um, and I don't feel even that I have finished, I'm always working on it, as you can tell, it feels like a live issue that one of the major tragedies of children's of the week is more to deal with always. That for me, the play has become uh, a requiem mass for Harvey Milk and George Moscone. On the one hand, and then also a boxing ring or a battleground between the left and the right split in this country, which is heard from the prosecution and defense. The trial play, which is just a, basically a trial, um, starts to reveal the, the, the uh, division, not just in San Francisco in 1979, but what we're all living with now is, I think, a huge risk in this country and, and a mortal battle. I, I uh, really question whether the split is left and right. Um, well, I, I think there is a real split, but I don't think it's left and right. Um, my own experience uh, uh, right now indicates that um, um, on this issue that there uh, that uh, the left and the right equally love the gay people. And um, they haven't been any of the left or the right mainstream people in this one. But we have uh, gay people have friends, but not on the left and the right. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, a friend of mine was uh, recently denied a, a house. Uh, um, he couldn't get a house, uh, couldn't rent a house because this uh, rather prominent uh, left-wing uh, woman who was uh, terribly, terribly afraid of gay men who's been uh, being exposed to AIDS, and um, that's a gay concern, not the woman, uh, was quite simply epidemic. But, you know, to mask with this rhetoric about AIDS and She was simply anti-gay. She didn't know it was masked with the fear of AIDS. And uh, so I, and I think this, uh, that we, uh, for many years, we've been presented with this false dichotomy of, of left and right um, in, in this country and elsewhere. Like the, uh, somehow uh, uh, there was going to be there is a paradise in some other country in the world. I never that the left is a paradise, or the, but I think to, 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 to say there is not a left and a right is, is foolish. Excuse me, but I do. Um, that is at least the training of the left says you are not supposed to hate the Jews hate gays, hate black people, hate poor people, hate elderly people, that it is sort of our duty as citizens of the world to have the civilization mind and heart to um, take care of these things. I think it's a very dangerous thing. It is, but if you want to make friends uh, on the other side. Diligence will be, I think that part of what's happening right. is a, a big difficulty in the definition of political. And I have no notion, actually, what you, as political. As you say when you wrote as is, you didn't think you were writing a political play, but you have written very right wing political plays. No, not right wing. The uh, Caribbean one? Not right wing. It's not a left wing one. It's Certainly not middle. It's not middle. It's not middle. It, I would call it a liberal play. What, where are you going? Uh, where I'm going is that beyond the politics of gayness, of male gayness, 
do you see any other politics, or, we, or is this discussion going to go in circles? I think there's plenty of politics, and each individual case of politics forms its own circle. Like, if you're, if you're gay and you want to have some rights, you have to look to your friends on the left and the right. If you're a Jewish person, you have to find friends who don't hate Jews. If you're a woman, you have to find allies who are not going to hate you because you're a woman. And this has nothing whatever to do with left and right. If you're a leftist, then you have friends on the left and the right. But the left and the right forms a very small, uh, uh, a very small case of politics. And that's, that's my opinion. I hate the term, though. Like, like a dogmatic ideology. <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll be pushed into it. As a woman, I can't imagine looking for friends on the right. I may not find them on the left. Yeah. But I won't even, there's no point even looking for them on the right. And I think that's some sort of valid difference. And that has to do with the split that Emily was talking about. I think the split she's talking about also in the class line, it, it, uh, there's a huge chasm between top and bottom also. I mean, I think we're all being forced to have new concepts of friends. Came into the camp, they, they got the fattest 
inmates and sat them in, in restaurants uh, with fake coffee, and, and they had even a whole set of money that they claimed was Jewish money. This opera is extremely meaningful to me for many reasons. And when I had the great good fortune to do it, it was the most scary event of my life, for fear I wouldn't get it right. And I spent the whole day night hiding, because there was a man who had that opera in his drawer for 30 years, and we had been entrusted with it. And I had this terrible thing that he would stand up and say, you didn't get it right. <laughs> and I would rush out and, and, and do myself. But what happened was, uh, it was called the Kaiser from Atlantis, and it was about. Where was it? It was written in Theresienstadt, and we. Where did you go? We in Amsterdam. We tried to every opera manager in America, and there are certain things opera managers in America are really not interested in. Although Kurt Adler finally, after we had a success in Europe with it, did do it at the San Francisco Opera, and uh, it, it was written by a man who knew that his whole constituency had nothing to look forward to. And it was written as an entertainment, a true entertainment, and a consolation. And the last chorale, it celebrates death in the most extraordinary way. And I must tell you, I did it in uh, Europe with many people who had been, or whose parents had been in camps. And when we got to the chorale, we never could rehearse it. Because it was impossible, the company would weep and sit down. And we only rehearsed it the night before we opened. And when we opened, and it was an act of profound courage for them. I shall never forget that opening night when they stood and sang it. It was amazing. And I guess it so touched the hearts of that community. Very few Jews in Amsterdam came to see it because as people would come to me on the street and say they weren't coming because they couldn't. And as much as you would say to them, but listen, it is to celebrate life. They couldn't believe it. But at the end, there was a silence of five minutes, and no one moved. And I think it just so afflicted the hearts of people who saw it. And it is not just the story of it. It was the material itself. It just was not having to do with the event. I don't know what I think about political theater, but I feel that I have had the great good fortune to somehow make contact having to do with issues that are profoundly meaningful to me. That's all I can say. Yeah, I'd like to ask all of the other people, actually, uh, some artists, something, which is, aside from any specific subjects and issues that your work addresses, what kind of attempts do they think ought to be made formally to change the way people look at them? a whole other question. That is, it's the old Brechtian question. How do you get people to see things with fresh eyes so that when you do political theater, it works A, beyond the immediate, and B, for audiences who aren't instantly sympathetic? Is there any, I know you, yeah. <laughs> well, recently, when we did X, an opera based on the life of Malcolm, uh, a particularly white community of people I know, uh, came to see it. And often one has a vision of a man that's fed to them basically by the New York Times. That's a questionable way of being presented, having things presented to you. And 
I remember, I was so struck the other day, I asked someone who saw it what they thought, and they said they thought it was wonderful. And for some reason, I turned and said, did you learn anything? And they said, it changed the way I saw it. Not the other, the way I saw me. I can't think of a better thing to have happened. I, I really was terribly impressed with that. I've never really liked bread. I was rather low with bread. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm very influenced by him. And uh, I found uh, his technique so useful. And, and uh, I'm surprised critics haven't pointed out how Brechtian as is, is. Um, it's presentational in parts, and I couldn't have written it without that man's work. Uh, to, uh, it was such a challenge to. Uh, to try to inform people. Um, I remember when I started writing this play, I, I had to figure out how do I get some information across. Mm -hmm. And then I thought of the, uh, the, the teaching concept of bread. And uh, uh, I'm very indebted to that. Um, and I, I think the, the division made between plays that inform and plays that are I was thinking more of plays that do something different from either informing or being an aesthetic experience, but actually shifting the grounds on which to do things. Uh, um, I just wanted to address that a little bit because. Can you speak up a little bit? Okay. Um, I feel like in my own case, I had uh, an easier time with that because um, doing while well, I was doing too many weird things at the same time, I was trying to write something in an opera form but in black vernacular, and that's never been done. So they gave me a, a pass, so to speak, to that. I think the things that are in the forms are the things that keep audiences out before they refuse to learn anything or see anything. It's, the forms themselves are are barriers, and um, and yet you need some boundaries somewhere. Uh, I had to write it in poetry, so that was a limitation, but I had to write it in the language of this century. Um, that gave me an opportunity to be more confrontational than soothing. Um, if, I, if I was able to uh, write it in language that you're already comfortable with, then you can go to sleep more easily. If, if I can... Uh, attempt to bring something that you hear on the street into the opera house, you're already sitting up a little more trying to listen. What, what am I hearing? It's so, so jarring to the ear in the first place that I think those things which wake up the listener, from, that disturb the expectations are the things that are useful. They may not be eternally useful, but they're, I think, at least useful once. I was very... Uh, disturbed because most people who uh, had some contact with Malcolm X insisted that anything you do must be a documentary. And I think this is impossible. I don't think there's any such thing. And so I was making judgments as I went along, just as the people who've done documentary films on him edited any remarks. Uh, there's a Warner Brothers film uh, where in, uh, which was done um, 
with a prior agreement from Warner Brothers that anything Malcolm may have said about Jews be omitted from the film. You get a, a picture of a man that, that moves from point A to point Z without point F. And it's, an, uh, it's not a documentary if you do that. If you write a, an opera, you can't write a documentary either. You're, write, you're still writing a poem. You're making judgments. So I thought it, just in the process of making judgments, every time I stepped out of the tradition, maybe someone would hear something or want to hear it again or have to step back from what they already know and, and contend with it. And this, in my opinion, also uh, happens on the level of your language and even on the style of the presentation of the piece. If you have someone, uh, as we did in this opera, come out who's a prisoner who has a do-rag on, and you're in an opera house, you're thinking, what is this guy doing with a do-rag on? But that do-rag is a, is a, a cultural uh, attribute that only addresses one particular place in the, in the world, and that's like black urban America. It, it might remind you, the way we wrapped it, of Attica, but it will not remind you of Shakespeare. It will not remind you of anything you have seen before in an opera house of Verdi, Puccini, nothing like that. So <laughs> I think in that, in that sense, by reaching out <coughs> to uh, a broader definition of the culture, you automatically bring in new symbols, or a new sense of symbols, if you want to use symbols, uh, definitely a new language. Uh, I think one of the political issues was, was I going to use the word nigger in the play? I mean, it's not, it's not something I normally write with. For me to write in rhyme was a stylistic uh, decision because I had to make a, a kind of, uh, in one section there's a 40s piece and I had to adhere to the style of the time. I do not normally write in rhyme, I don't like it. But in order to, to express that part of our culture, which, which raps in 1985, which did bebop in 1941, I had to bring that to the form. And I think, uh, in that sense, I found that um, the avenues are really there for, for uh, bringing a, a thought to the piece that could awaken just a little bit maybe. I think we've been talking about political plays and the commitment to issues and ideas of artists. I think we won't really have any political theater until we have theaters. We don't have theaters. We have companies that come together and that work, and sometimes if you're lucky, you can work with five or six of the same people or ten of the same people over a period of years and, and, and have some feeling for the people some continuity of create some creative continuity with the people that you're working with, and we consider that lucky if we have that possibility. Uh, in order to have a political theater, I think that the first thing you have to have is a group of people that have some kind of unified political commitment of what they're trying to express. Uh, this seems to be the foundation for political theater. Not that if all the people in the company have to have already made up their mind what they believe in but they have to at least be exploring seriously the same area and looking for serious social answers. That is, I think as artists, we have to find other artists to work with 
who are going to develop with us our political theories, our political views, our political perspectives, so that we're not stuck with doing a play on a social issue here, another one on an important issue there, and we, we feel that, that somehow that's the best we can do to be political, is speak about this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem, which we both brought up, as, and, they, and we must do that, but we don't do that from the point of view of having politics. Now, I think to have politics means that you have made certain decisions in your life about what you believe is a useful form of, of social procedure. Whether you then believe that this is uh, in the direction of, uh, of the left, in the direction of the right, in the direction of anarchism, in the direction of militant feminism, in the direction of whatever direction it may take. Fascism. You can have a fascist political theater. You can have a fascist political theater. But, but you can't really have a political theater if you can do one play at a time here and one play at a time there and have to develop each of us theater artists by ourselves, our opinions, our views, in conflict with other people, in, in cohesion with a few people. Here we find friends, as you say, looking for friends, looking for people who, will, who, will, who can give us some support for our ideas, who can increase our, our artistic capacity to express social issues. So that I think fundamentally uh, in New York it's very hard to have any kind of political theater because it's hard to keep a company together. And then do we want to do that? Do we really, have we really asked ourselves, where do I stand? Not only where do I stand in relation to, to, the, to, to the fact that uh, the gay people should be treated superbly and the fact that I think, think Jews shouldn't be oppressed and black people shouldn't be oppressed and when it happens it's horrible and you have to show people how horrible it is so they won't want to do it anymore. We have to in somehow, in some manner, go beyond that and make some suggestions for new forms of social structure. We have to have an opinion about how it could be done better or in what direction we could move to make it go. It presupposes that That does presuppose that. It does well, presuppose we're not going to just blow each other up because we're so stupid we can't think of anything better. No, no, I, mean, no, no I do presuppose. Oh, wait, wait. wait. Also, I do presuppose. But Judith, it also, it, there's one thing lacking, which is that it's very hard to do this when there aren't any social movements. No, we have to create them. viable it. ones. No, and when that's the theater, challenge. There, there, are there are no social, social movements. movements. There are lots of social movements. There are no... Well, compared to 10 years ago. People are tired, but they're, yeah. the issues are there, and the people are still working. We may not like them, but they're vast ones. They're no, we're, we're talking about two different things. Yeah. Wait, 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 you guys are two, talking about two separate things. But what I'm talking about is that right now they're sticking to what one very loosely called the left. There's no longer a real movement. There aren't even a series of movements. Compare, say, to the late 60s when there were political theaters and political movements. There is, it's much more fragmented and scattered and feeble. I, 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 I think this is so. And that there isn't okay. a culture of the left. Let's go to the... <laughs> <laughs> yes? I, I've been wondering, as I've been addressing all the years, is this very important part of theater, especially political theater, the audience? I think that that. Well, we can't see it. Can you tell us who you? Are? Oh, my, everybody identify themselves. My name is Bob Martin. I actually 
in New York and I'm from San Francisco and it works quite a bit with groups like Objective Cupertino, the Minds Group, the Belief, the other company. And, and in San Francisco, there is a difference than in New York because there has been, I think, still is a community of groups that do consider themselves to be political theater. And one of the things I think, certainly about the Minds Group and the Cupertino, and the same thing you said about yours the other day, is going out to people versus people coming to people. And I think that's one important thing. But beside that, I think the issue becomes that there is the politics of theater, there is the economics of theater, which is the reality of space, paying people, how much people can afford tickets. I think that's an issue that we probably don't want to get into. But beside that, and then I think dealing with the work, the real question is, because we're competing with movies and television, because you don't have something like a federal theater project with 30, where you have a government that realizes that culture is an important part of, the, of society, because you don't have even groups like a group theater being able to sustain themselves. Let's how ask you, questions, not me. Okay. Say. How do you, well, but it's, it's in historical perspective, how do you create a situation now in the 80s and previous everything where theater is able to reach large groups of people and where it starts reaching ethnic people and where it starts really reaching disenfranchised people? Because that is where political theater will have an effect. Well, I would just risk being flip and say New York is probably not the best place to start. I, I think. Uh, people are obsessed with money and real estate in New York, and it's, it's kind of hard to break through that. But I think th this is where the, the idea, the Latin American concept of popular theater could be instructive. Uh, and I think the campesinos and the mind could fit into that. They, at least when I was in San Francisco, they were readily available for free. And I think that they did uh, build a, a very, very big audience um, over the years there. And I think that there are people who do that in New York, like the Poems and Traveling Theater, I think, in the Teatro Cuarto, but I think that <laughs> people have been trying to build those kind of theaters. I think we're, we're uh, trying to figure out where can they best live and survive um, with, without having uh, really to just keep asking President Reagan for some money, because that's, that's not it. That shouldn't be the reason you're sustained or not sustained. And for a lot of, at least third world groups, particularly in this city, that is the reason they're open. And maybe you can't do it in large groups. Maybe it has to be in mm -hmm. small groups. Because it is true that everybody at that complex, the Lincoln Center, is basically holding real estate. They're really not. The concern is not. Yes, we are. Well, that's fabulous. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, I yeah. think that one thing. I think we have to be clear about is, is, is also at times to be able to make our pieces strong enough that they can go on to main stages of, of, of the major national theaters in America, to go on to Broadway, to go into the... Who are the, who are the that's, that's, dangerous, the that's a dangerous definition of strong. You're then saying that any work... I'm not saying only, but for many of us it has been that is not, that is not legitimate. We are somehow um, going against... That somehow we're losing our integrity if we're if we are doing that. And what I'm saying is, I think in the '80s, which seems to be about me and more and uh, other two-year-old phrases. Uh, I have a two-year-old who's not taking very good for the '80s because there's two words now: me and more. <laughs> um, that maybe we just have to say, how can we find those forms like Tony was talking about? that will reach larger audiences that would have previously been against listening to what we have to say. I think that's a brave and scary um, leap to make, and I, I feel I'm in the process of doing it. It's real hard. But 
I think most of us here are saying we've got to, or we are not going to be listened to, and we're going to be enfeebled. And um, and you have to be able to do small people too. And do, exactly. I mean, I, there's no contradiction. And do tunnel no. vision too, and then go back and 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 and, and work. Um, with I'm, the Eureka, and, and, and this place started with the Eureka, and it's had then seven cities since then. Not New York. New York is a very hard place, I think, to develop work. Yes, but what, what frequently happens is a, 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 I never a writer saw like we've done my play on Broadway. I mean, that was the last thing I. I they really had a drag me kicking and screaming on Broadway because I didn't think we could run on Broadway. Broadway, and I felt we should have stayed off Broadway at one point. And, uh, it was only because uh, Bernie Jacobs of the Schubert demanded that I bring the play to Broadway and put money in it that convinced me that we should be on Broadway. And um, to reach the, and he appealed to my higher sense that we have to reach as many people as possible. And, uh, and I was trying to take a more conservative way of looking at it that we can run for a longer period off Broadway, et cetera. Anyway, this is my, uh, my restricted thinking. Because uh, somehow I had a conception of, of myself as not being a Broadway playwright at that point. And, uh, but yet I, 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 I think I, I want to write uh, things for more intimate groups too. And uh, table pieces, not everything is suitable for either the small audiences or the large audiences. You have to tailor up. I, I, well, I was just going to say the, the problem with the pattern is that once a playwright goes to Broadway, he joins this other class. And that class seldom takes their plays on trucks. They just don't do it. They, they even go to restaurants. And it, it's part of a, <laughs> a, a, a pattern that you have to be willing to break. I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how every individual goes about breaking it. Thank you for listening to STCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.